Well, yeah, welcome back to THK, and today's going to be a little bit different than the first two episodes, where we don't so much uh, focus on a franchise as we do on a specific creator. Uh, today we're talking about somebody very near and dear to Dustin and I. Dustin. Yes, sir. Would you like to tell us a bit about Kira Amamea? So Kira Amamea is, I'm trying to remember what, what was probably the first thing I ever saw that he had done. And I, I, there's probably things I saw that he had worked on, but I think the first, uh, directorial thing I'd ever seen of his was actually, uh, Garo. Um, I don't know. What is there to say about Kida? Uh, I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about the movies. He definitely has his preferences and like his little filmmaking and design fetishes, things he's obsessed with, uh, that I noticed throughout these, these, I mean, I've noticed them before, but there were specific things watching these three films that I really was like, oh, hey, that was also in the other movie. Uh, and uh, I will say that Kida, uh, I'm assuming he's goth because he's sort of obsessed with goth imagery and, and clothing. Uh, he loves monsters. He loves monster ladies. And he loves him a butch hero. He's pretty so, much uh, a perfect human being. <laughs> He, you know, I do, I like, I, I always think when I watch his stuff and I'm thinking about like his, his preferences and the way he likes to make things, I'm like, eh, Kita could hang. I think, I think I could hang out with, we would have stuff to talk about. And, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the work that the man does for sure. Yeah. I found out about him, uh, through you because you introduced me to Goro, which we'll talk oh, about later. I didn't later. realize that. Yeah. Like, I mean, later on, I realized that I had seen other stuff he worked on. Like he designed Gigan for Godzilla Final Wars. And that's right. See, so that was probably, yeah, I would have seen that before I saw Goro. Yeah. And uh, Final Wars is, of course, a Rie Kitamura movie, but there's a lot of Kita influence in it design wise, I think. And so, oh, most definitely. So, like, uh, he's a very influential tokusatsu director and character designer. And yeah, if I had to describe him at all, I'd say he is, yeah, fetishistic's a good, good word to use. He's got... He really fixates on certain things. He does. And, you know, he's kind of, we're touching on three of his films, but it, that is not even the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his work. Like, as you and I have found, he's worked on stuff we would have even never thought that he had worked on, uh, directed shows that you wouldn't even think, you know, are in his in his realm of interest. Uh, so we're, we're barely touching it, but uh, I would uh, encourage anyone who after this show is interested, like definitely check out his stuff. Cause it's interesting. And he is definitely an auteur. He has an eye and uh, makes cool stuff. Yeah. And so we've selected uh, three films from his filmography to discuss today. And uh, one of them, at least one of them, I know Dustin and I have a very strong mutual love for, which is uh, the mm -hmm. first one we're going to discuss, uh, Zaram from 1991. Dustin, what is the plot of Zaram? Uh, so the plot of Zaram is that a uh, dangerous and ancient, I believe, if I, if I am remembering correct, bioweapon is heading toward Earth, and a bounty hunter named Iria is trying to intercept it and capture it to, to collect the bounty on its head, and also two electricians get mixed up and kind of uh uh trapped in the i just realized how complicated this gets when you start talking about <laughs> basically a space bounty hunter and two uh hapless electricians from japan 
versus um, a uh, a badass space monster, and it's probably the closest thing to a Japanese version of uh, the Predator uh, that we'll ever get. And and if there are other ones, this is probably the best version of that. But uh, yeah, that, I mean, we'll get into it. But that's Zoram in a nutshell: uh, space bounty hunter lady versus space monster guy. And in case you didn't pick up on it from that description, Zoram is actually one of the coolest movies ever made. It kind of is, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, it's for guys like us. It's kind of a perfect example of what I at least like to see in genre films. Um, it's got it all. Mm -hmm. It's got a a tough lady hero. It's got a sweet monster, and also it's a sweet monster that slight spoilers. It changes over the course of the movie, so you get a lot of cool oh, stuff sure going does. on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even a set of not so dislikable comic relief which can be no hard. i kind of love them actually and one of them is played by our buddy from the gamma trilogy who also plays gonza in uh the garo series i don't know the actor's name he's yeah. just gonza to me uh, uh yukijiro he's, he's really hutaru. funny and i love him what does that say it again sorry uh yukijiro hutaru is his name yukijiro hutaru yeah. he's awesome and uh, i now get excited whenever i see him pop up and stuff i was gonna say um I had forgotten he was one of those guys, and he's really oh, good yeah. in this. He's, um, you know, in the Gamera movies, he kind of plays a bit of a cowardly character as well, and he uh, he excels at that. Uh, I, I get very happy whenever I see him. Well, what's fun about this is like they the the two the the two uh, human characters, the or Earthlings, I guess Iria is probably human, are sort of cowardly and hapless, but they also step up to the plate, like. They don't. They don't leave Iria hanging. Like they could easily go hide somewhere because Zaram isn't really interested in them. Uh, but they, um, I don't know. They're they're good characters. They're fun to watch. Uh, the there's there's some really good jokes and some good interactions between them. Yeah, they. I think they're kind of the linchpin to the whole movie working. Honestly, because if they weren't as likable as they are, then uh, a lot of the movie would kind of fall apart. I think. Yeah, because we do spend quite a bit of time with them. It's not that it's a slow build to the action, like the monster shows up in the very first scene, but there are long stretches of time where we're focusing on them instead of Iria. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of first scenes, how <laughs> how amazing is is the introduction to Zoram? So the the movie starts with uh, an amazing matte painting that looks like it. It kind of reminded me of Ralph McQuarrie's work for Star Wars, like stuff that he painted that never got used in the movies. Like you see some kind of like space fortress that looks a little bit like the design for Darth Vader's castle. If you've ever seen that stuff. And, uh, and then it cuts inside and it's this grainy black and white footage. The soundtrack to this movie is wild. It's a lot of chanting and like, like rhythmic drums and like atmospheric stuff. So that's going on. And here's one of the first things that we'll see repeated in Kida's work, uh, when Kida wants you to know that a character is a badass, he makes them kill a bunch of people. Like, he just sets up a scene where they annihilate a bunch of people, and that's what Zaram does. And this, I mean, it's black and white, so, you know, it's not utterly disturbing or anything, but this gets pretty splattery for for Kida's, um, he's not a gore guy, really. Like, his stuff doesn't get excessively gory, but... Uh, Zaram, the movie opens with Zaram just, I don't even know who they are, but he massacres a bunch of guys with guns. Yeah, I always forget just how intense that opening is and how, 
I'm not going to say it's tonally out of place with the rest of the movie, but it does kind of set up a different kind of monster movie than what we do get. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's it's literally just there to let you know that Zaram means business. Yes. Which is good because I think without it, there's a slight chance that when you see Zaram, you might think he looks silly. But, like, his design, I mean, he's like a mushroom. He's got, like, this weird mushroom hat thing, which we learn is actually him. Like, Zaram lives in the head, of the, or the hat, of the creature, and the rest is something he's attached to. Um, they're really vague about those details. They're just like, ancient bioweapon, he lives in the hat. That's basically all we get. Um, and then uh, what? he's got this crazy body that's later revealed to be like the... It's like a, the bottom of a caterpillar? Like, it's <laughs> it's wild looking. And then my favorite detail is that he wears big poofy pants. <laughs> that's your favorite detail? Yeah, I was thinking about it because partway through most, through most of the movie, he wears like a poncho kind of thing. And then he's like, I mean, business now. And he takes off the poncho and you see the monster body underneath, which is really badass looking. But then I, I started thinking, I'm like, Saram gets up in the morning and like picks out a pair of pants. <laughs> And that day he picked his big poofy brown ones. Like, I don't know. It just cracked me up because I'm like, why does the monster wear pants? I don't know. It just, I don't know. It's really silly, but it works. Like, he's imposing. He's very tall. You you get the sense he's very powerful. He works. He's, he's an awesome character. And uh, well, my favorite design element is he's got this creepy female pale Ooh. face right in the middle of his forehead, which can sometimes yeah. sprint out. And it, it's almost like a graboid tentacle from Tremors. It's really awesome. And we find out that what it does is, so it's like, it's like basically Zaram's feeding proboscis and it can take, you know, like meat from another creature. And then it, 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 this is how I understood it because he kind of does it to, um, one of the, one of the main characters. Like he takes a bite out of him. Right. And then he spits out, it looks like a little acorn or something. And then because he only got a tiny bite of the guy, it kind of grows into like a half formed weird clone of him that he then stomps. And in a scene that doesn't at all need to be in the movie, <laughs> like if you were going to no, cut I, anything. I love that scene because it's like Zaram's telling it to like go and do stuff. And it's like, I physically can't do anything. So he just crushes. <laughs> it's like, look, pal, I'm, I'm made of goo. I got no legs. I'm puking up oatmeal. Like it, whatever is coming out of its mouth is the grossest. It just looks like it's been chewing on Dookie and it's fallen out of its mouth. It's so nasty. Um, yeah, the, the, that's another thing Zaram can do. Zaram has these little things. They look like, I don't know, they're like eggs or nuts or something. And he throws them out there and they turn into monsters. So that's the way the movie gets more monsters in. Yeah. And what's really clever, the whole, this is, watching these, I grew to appreciate how clever Kita is as a director because... I noticed this time, I never thought about it before, but all the monsters, that, and I think there's three fully formed ones that Zaram creates, all three of them have the same body. They just have different heads. And I never thought about it before, and they move in different ways. So it's got a different performance going on, but they reuse the same monster suit three times with three heads. It's just clever. There's He's really good at like cutting corners in the right ways, and I really noticed it watching this stuff this time and really appreciated it he's a yeah he's very adept at stretching a budget and also like conveying big ideas in very contained ways because yeah. i'm sure that 
Zaram pitched as an idea sounds like a huge scale thing, but it's honestly just four actors in a warehouse for 90 yeah. minutes. Five when another monster shows up. But yeah, yeah. It, I, it's it's very, very small scale. Um, it's just smart. It's smart filmmaking. And you start to appreciate things that Kita does. Like um, he often tries to have... And I've seen this in his other work too. Like if he can sneak in a one take fight scene, he'll do it, but not in a flashy way, in a way where you almost don't notice that the camera hasn't cut away. Um, he does it with dialogue scenes too. He's it's almost Spielbergian in that way. But what's great about doing things that way is that it is um, impressive to watch, but it's also economical to shoot because you only have one setup, and once you get it, you got it. You don't have any coverage to shoot, which is just another way. Like I don't know. I was really marveling at how clever and um, economic he is as a filmmaker. And, and, and I don't mean that in like a, as a jab, like he's, he's very good at figuring out how to use his budget and make it work. No, I agree. Um, I think the mark of a good director is that every time you watch something they've made, you learn something or take away something that, you know, for a fact, you as a filmmaker will also end up using. And yeah. watching all three of these movies, there was at least one moment in each of them where it's like, I'm going to end up using that at some point. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, like he's he, he he's inspiring in that way because um, uh, Seb and I are both filmmakers. We make movies and uh, I think that's he might be the most film filmmaker friendly of the tokusatsu creators because he kind of doesn't fall back on many of the like tried and true toku tricks and ways to film things he he has a his stuff has an identity all to its own uh, maybe less so for his tv stuff but the movies for sure they they feel like kita amamiya movies like there is a distinct style at play and a lot of it is that that cleverness and that economic filmmaking yeah and i think like what separates him from other tokusatsu filmmakers is whereas most toku directors will kind of focus in on the effects and make that the star of the show Kita has his aesthetic, which he's attached to, and that he makes the star as much as the effects work, and he is very invested in all of his human characters. Um, For sure. I am a really big fan of Yuko Moriyama as Iria in Zaram. Mm -hmm. I think she is just an awesome hero. She plays it with like this nonchalant wit about it, which I really love, uh, and she really showcases it towards the end when she's blasting away at Zaram in his various forms. Yeah. And the, the, the writing of the characters is so good for all three of our main characters, but for Iria, especially because she, so, well, I guess we're leaving out a character. We're leaving out Bob. Oh yeah. Bob. So, so Iria has in the, in the parlance of the movie, Bob is an AI that she speaks to. I think in the, in the anime uh, prequel, it's revealed that Bob originally had a body and stuff like that, but I haven't watched those all the way through. Um, but so you learn a lot about Ira just between her conversations uh, with Bob, but she doesn't stop and like go into her backstory. You just kind of get a sense of who she is based on the way she responds to stuff and, you know, how nonchalant she is. Like it, she's a very much like blue collar kind of bounty hunter. Like it seems like oh, another day fighting space monsters kind of thing until get things get serious, you know, and Bob, oddly enough, is the one that panics more, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, and Iria is also just a great example of Kita's love 
I think he has a strong love for female characters in general, because when he was brought on to Zeram, it was originally a concept called HP-99, and it was about okay. a young man and his robot hunting an alien. And he was the one who came up with the idea of Iria and Bob instead. Which I mean, he made the right decision, because, I mean, that's... I don't know. I know that you and I agree on this. Um, maybe some of our listeners don't, and I kind of don't care. But, <laughs> but I, am, I am always more interested to watch a female protagonist than a male. Like, and I'm not, I'm not saying I don't like male protagonists. There's plenty that I love, but I always get more engaged. I don't know why I, I just really appreciate it. And, um, when I was watching Zoram this time, it kind of occurred to me cause I've been watching other, um, Japanese stuff of around that same time, like bubblegum crisis and other anime with female leads. And it made me realize how much of an impact Ripley and aliens had on media everywhere because I really think that's what did it. I think that's what sparked it in a lot of creators minds that like, Oh, you can put a lady holding a big gun and it's just as awesome or more awesome than a dude. <laughs> like we've yeah. seen, and maybe just by virtue of we've seen a dude do it a million times. So there's, it's, you know, I, I saw a little bit of Ripley in, in area this time when I watched one of my uh, favorite parts in the entire movie is when the two guys are struggling to put together a gun and she just grabs it and within like two seconds has it assembled and fires at Zaram. It's so cool. It's so it's cool. so good. I also love her, her armor. Or it's not even armor, but the power suit that she wears. Mm -hmm. um, it's not armor because I don't think it's meant to protect. I think it just enhances her strength so that she can actually fight a, a you know seven foot tall space monster. But the design of it is really cool. And... Um, you mostly see it during the daytime or, well, I'll just say daytime. It's not really daytime. She like fires a flare and it makes light, whatever. But anyway, but when you see it in the, in the night, it's even cooler because it has details on it that are done in a retro reflective material. And so they're shining a light from next to the camera and it makes those little details glow just a little mm -hmm. bit, you know? And, uh, it's just really cool. It's a neat little touch that like cost them you know, practically nothing to do. And it just makes that armor design look that much cooler. I called it armor again. It's not armor. It doesn't protect her at all. At all. It leaves her chest completely exposed, but <laughs> it makes her tough. Whatever you want to call it. Power suit. I uh, really appreciated all the little bits of world building they managed to fit in there too. And I know it's like, it's, it's basically a gag, but they find a giant cockroach at one point, which we're left to, I, I can't remember if it's confirmed or not, but we're left to assume it's her food. Like, she just eats yeah. these giant white bugs. Mm -hmm. And it's a throwaway joke, but it gives you a sense of what kind of world she comes from and, you know, what she's used to living like. Can I tell you something about those white bugs? Please do. I really want to, I really want to eat one. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't know. There was something about, like, I could tell what the texture was when uh, Tepe, that's his name, Tepe takes a bite out of it. And it just looks so pleasant. Like it, I just, I just really want to bite one of those bugs. <laughs> wow, Dustin wants to eat bugs. That's I do. Good. I feel like it probably tastes like coconut a little bit, and I want to try it. I'm sure it has like the texture of coconut. Yeah. I well, I I I thought it maybe had the texture of like a uh, 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 what do you call it? Like a, like glutinous rice, like mochi or something. Oh yeah. So I, in my mind, it is coconut flavored mochi and I really want to eat it. <laughs> now there you have it. Um, I made like 
a small list of movies that Zaram reminded me of this time around while I was watching it. And, you know, all the usual ones kept coming to mind. Like, there's a bit of Predator in there. There's a bit of Terminator sure. in there. Yeah. Uh, I forgot that there is an actual Tremors homage at one point when it just yeah. breaks through the back glass of the truck and wiggles yeah. around. Oh, made me so happy. That, that's when it takes a bite out of, um, oh, what is his name? Uh, Kariyama? Is it that? Oh, yeah, uh, Kamiya. Kamiya, yeah, it's Kamiya and Tepe. Yeah, it takes a little, like, perfect circular bite, which was oddly satisfying, like, that it's a perfect circle that it bites out of his arm. It's like when you use an ice cream scoop to scoop into, like, a fresh batch of ice cream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, uh, you know, just to focus in on Zaram one more time, he's got three or four forms in this movie. How many does he have? Okay, so you see him... Uh, fully clothed with the poncho. Yeah. He takes poncho off. That's when he has the weird, like, bug body on his torso. Right? Um, then he gets... He gets blown up. And he's a stop-motion skeleton monster. Yes. And then he gets blown up again. And the head, the hat, which, as we know, is what Zaram actually is. Zaram is the hat. Turns into John Carpenter's thing. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> And each form is just more badass than the last. It's so smart. It's, it's, you know, it was like, it's like they sat down and said, okay, look at, we, this movie only has this many people in it. It takes place in limited locations. We need lots of monsters and we need to keep people engaged with the monster. So we're going to have it change form throughout the movies. And it's so smart and it's so badass. And I just love monsters that have alternate forms anyway so like it speaks directly to my heart and i love how it like runs the gamut of practical effects like it's a guy in a suit it's a puppet it's stop motion it they used every trick when it came to zaram himself which is in a couple of shots it's stop motion and a puppet yes. like a puppet hand yeah. but like the body is stop motion so clever and then also the final form um i noticed this time they clearly the full-sized version like when you see it in full is a miniature mm-hmm. it's a marionette but then when you get close, like when when it has to interact with Tepe, it's a full-size puppet. So they oh – man, it's so smart. And I think it's because Kida has a special effects background. That's why he's good at making special effects movies. He knows how to shoot stuff. He knows what tricks to use. But, like, man, it's so effective. I could gush over Zaram forever. Like, I just I, – I was watching it last night, and I was about 40 minutes in, and I was just like – is this one of my favorite movies? This might be one of my favorite movies, just period. I was thinking the same thing. Um, if I mean, it's definitely one of my like top ten tokusatsu movies, like yeah. easily. Uh, you'll notice that I'm not giving a ton of background info on it, and that's because finding background information on these movies is tough. That yeah. being said, I did manage to find one distressing quote from Kita, where he claims oh, no. that th- this shoot was grueling and that there was one. 37 hour long shoot with no sleep yeah i mean i believe it because of the effects yeah exactly like it had to be that oh i wanted to bring up something um i noticed it in this and hakaider and and um not so much in grow i think by the time he gets to grow he amped things up a little bit but kita manages to make great fight scenes okay like iria fighting saram hand to hand that are slow. Yeah. Like they are they are slow and not complicated, but for some reason, the way they're shot, the way they're scored, and the sound design keep them compelling. And in the case of 
Um, I mean, also for Hakaider, but in the case of Zoram specifically, the slow speed just makes them feel that much more powerful, I thought. It made each blow feel like it counted, and if it connected, it would do damage. So then when a blow does hit, you you feel it. Like when when Iria starts to lose a fight early on, you're like, ooh, like every hit, you're like, ooh, that's gotta hurt. That's gotta be, that's gotta be painful. Well, I feel like with the slower fights, it adds more, like, literal physical weight to the characters. Like, it feels yeah. like two people fighting each other. It's not super choreographed and fancy, and it adds kind of just a, a little, little thin layer of realism to everything, which I really like. Yeah. I think it also allows for the actors themselves to do a lot of the fighting. Yeah. Like, I think there are times when Iria is swapped out for a stunt double when she's doing more complicated kicks and things like that, but for just the punches and blocks, it's all her. Like, you can see her face clearly the entire time. And um, that really, that goes a long way, I think. Um, it's something I appreciate about the guy who plays Koga in the Garou series, that he he does a lot of the fighting and a lot of the wire work. Like, it's not always him, but it's him a lot of the time. Um, so, I guess to sum Zaram up, I genuinely think it's probably a masterpiece of the genre. I think it's about as good of the kind of film as you can find. It's, I don't know, it's a sweet action movie. It's a great example of tokusatsu. It's got a great monster, cool lead. I don't know what else to say. I think it's I think it's the best non-kaiju tokusatsu movie, probably. Yes. It's also pretty accessible. Like, it never gets so weird or so, so specifically Japanese that, like, I feel like you couldn't show it to somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, Content-wise, it's also pretty tame. Other than the opening scene being gory, like, there's no excessive, like, awkward sexuality or or anything like that. Like, it's 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 kind of a hard PG-13. Like, you could show it to a older kid and they'd be fine. Um, I, I say if you want to get into Toku, uh, that's a pretty good starting point. It's it's. I mean, you're going to be spoiled because most movies aren't that good. Yeah. But... Uh, It'll get you pumped. Like, if, if Zaram doesn't get you pumped, nothing will. I will say it's also... It, we're Obviously, we're still praising it and all that, but it's also probably the least aesthetically Kita movie of the three that we watched. There's not a ton of gothiness on display, and, you know, uh, our hero's more kind of like... The, it's, she's got this slick white power suit. I don't know. Zaram himself is a very Kita monster, but nothing around him is very Kita-esque. I think maybe I slightly disagree, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay, cool. Well, we're going in chronological order here. So next up is 1995's Mechanical Violator Hakaider. Oh, what a great title. Which, yeah, that, that title kept me away <laughs> from the movie for a long time. The word violator? Yeah, yeah it's like, like uh, who's he violating? Yeah, I was going to say, what's yeah. going on here? What's he doing? Anyways, um... A <laughs> uh, slight bit of backstory on Hikaider. He was a... I'm not too familiar with this franchise, but there was a tokusatsu series in the 70s called Kikaider. Hikaider was a supporting villain or one of the main antagonists. And I think he's kind of the Venom to Kikaider's Spider-Man. I think it's that kind of relationship. Okay, cool. Is my understanding of it. Like, he's the anti-Kikaider. And... Uh, I guess what ended up happening was this company, Toei, uh, wanted to reboot Kakaider as a movie, 
And so they approached Kida, who was infinitely more interested in Huckhider as a character. <laughs> and he took the villain of this uh, kid's tokusatsu series and made him like an anti-fascist symbol, which was uh, which is fascinating. Uh, I guess I'll describe the plot uh, since you did Zaram. <laughs> yeah. But basically, a group of treasure hunters in this dystopian future wake up Hakaider, who's this cyborg who loves to kill. He loves to kill. He's got a cool motorcycle and a boomstick that makes things go boom. And he hops yeah. on that motorcycle and he goes all the way to Jesus Town. And he goes right to fucking Jesus Town, man. He knows. Right. He knows. He knows shit's going on in Jesus Town. <laughs> Jesus Town being this uh, faux utopic society run by this uh, by this very very pretty villain who's got his own cyborg named Mikhail. And together they yeah. rule with a with an iron fist under the guise of... I think his name is Gurjev. Gurjev. Gurjev? Yeah. yeah. Jurgev? Something like that. Anyways, uh, they, like, run this utopia. There's a group of freedom fighters that want to overthrow him because they know that this is all just a, you know, just a sham. And uh, Hakaider, who just loves to kill... Just loves to kill so much. He's a he's a so watching this, I was like, "Fuck, dude, Hakaider's a sociopath." I uh, he joins forces with this uh these rebels and uh, helps them fight off the bad guys or good guys. D depends. See, that's that's the thing, right? Like like Hakaider's in this movie. Hakaider redefines evil. Yes, because. Uh, good in this movie is, you know, no crime. Every, everyone's peaceful and happy because if they're not peaceful and happy, they get lobotomized. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a bad boy in Jesus Town, they cut up your brain. Um, and they have a bunch of robot stormtroopers to enforce it. And, uh, the, I mean, Hakaider says as much at the end. He's talking to uh, uh, Ma Ma Mikael or Michael or whatever you want to call him. He's definitely a reference to biblical, the archangel Michael. Um, but he's also secretly Kakaider, I guess. I don't know. The movie's confusing. Uh, but he, he, he tells him, like, if this is justice, then I'll be evil. And then the flowers he's <laughs> holding burst into flames. So, <laughs> dude, if, if I can describe Hakaider one way, with all of its flaws, which I will get into, it is one of those metal movies ever made. And that, oh, yeah. that line is so, oh man. I, I forgot about that line, and I cheered when he said it. It was so awesome. It is. It gives you chills. It makes your hair stand up. Even though the rest of the movie is so silly. Like, it, it has those little moments in it that are beautiful. Um, so, this is going to be a bit of an interesting discussion, because we watched two different cuts of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, so you watched the theatrical cut, which I think runs 52 minutes. Something like that. It's very short. Yeah, and I watched the director's cut, which is 77 minutes. Um, which is also very short. Is, man, he... <laughs> good run times. Good run times all yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how long it had been since you watched Akaider. Uh, I had seen it for the first time earlier this year. And uh, I can't remember which cut I saw initially. But I walked away with it feeling way more positively about it than I did the first time around. Hmm. I, I, it's been a few years since I watched it. The last time I watched it was on DVD. This was me freshly cracking open my Blu-ray. Um, and I had fully intended to watch the director's cut, but when I, the director's cut's on the disc, but it looks like shit. Like the, the, it looks like a beat up work print. It's, it's in sub standard definition quality. 
and I was just like, man, I just got this Blu-ray. <laughs> like, I, I, I want to watch the good version. And I've seen, I've seen the director's cut before, so it wasn't like I hadn't watched that version of it. I'm pretty sure the version that I used to watch regularly was the was the director's cut. Um, and the the biggest difference is just that um, Michael, the opposing robot is in the director's cut way more he's established earlier um i think he's the one who delivers the killing blow to uh karu right in the director's cut he does yes yeah in the in the theatrical cut she just dies from the, the gunshot wounds you until the you never see michael outside of the the bad guy's lair in the theatrical cut no actually i i retract that statement from what i remember she does just she does die on her own oh, okay. after the fact, yeah. Okay, maybe. Which well, we'll get to that later. That was something that didn't sit well with me. Um, it's pretty weird. Yeah, the director's cut on the Media Blasters Blu-ray is one of the worst transfers I've ever seen of any movie on the format. The even the sound mix is awful on it. It's just yeah. And it's weird because the theatrical cut is beautiful on there. Like the print they got for that is great. Like. Um, so it's just bizarre that maybe that's just what exists, I guess. And because I was watching it on DVD before, I never noticed how bad it was. Yeah. I mean, quality aside, I'll still go back to the, uh, director's cut in the future just cause I do like having the whole story there. And I like those scenes of Mikhail. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if the theatrical cut has the scene where he kills one of his soldiers out of anger, just rips his face out, but, uh, I don't think so. No. I don't think it's there. That's good stuff. I, in the theatrical cut, he doesn't. He really doesn't do much, and so uh, I will say the biggest detriment to the theatrical cut, aside, I mean, it's glossier, it moves a little quicker, but the biggest detriment is that when Hakider finally fights him at the end, it really doesn't mean anything because you haven't seen him do anything except stand in the room and talk about justice. Yes, um, I think that in a lot of ways this represents. Kita's aesthetic down to a T. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've got... It, it's like, a lot of his stuff, he loves to contrast the idea of, like, outwardly beautiful being evil and the darker characters being the actual good. And yeah. uh, in this, we have a villain who's, like, angelic-looking. He's a pretty boy with an angel wing on his uniform. And we've got Mikael, who's this glossy white android... And then we've got our rebels who are just these, like, gross, kind of grimy punks, our main... But very diverse. They are very... There were a lot of, there were a lot of non-Japanese people speaking Japanese in this movie, which you don't see very often in Japanese movies. No, like, um, we had some uh, Caucasian actors, we had some black actors in there, like, it was, uh, yeah, Jesus Town is very diverse, I'll give it that much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Jesus Town. Uh, before you know what you know what I I have to assume that Jesus Town is Jesus Town for the same reason as they used Christian imagery and stuff like you know like Evangelion. Yeah, it's just like there there was a period in the '90s where, like in Japanese media, it was just cool to like put crosses in and like base things on angels. Like it was just like it's pretty empty most of the time and stuff, but it was used a lot. You see it a lot in anime. You see it a lot in movies. Like it's, 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 it's kind of interesting to watch. Like they don't have the context. They just like the imagery, which is a good approach. I, I, I applaud that. I, Oh, I yeah. agree. I like it. Um, 
my favorite parts. I mean, of... we do it all the time to every other culture's stuff. Oh, yeah. We're always stealing <laughs> visuals from other religions. My favorite part of uh, the entire movie are Karu's dream scenes, which uh, Karu is actually our uh, love interest. Eh. Uh, it's one sided, I think. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think Hokkaido regards her more as like a pet, maybe. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't think he was going to marry her. I don't um, think he can love. This is also the first of at least two characters named uh, Karu that yeah. uh, Kita puts in his stuff. Yeah, because the uh, our female lead in the Garou series is also Karu. Yeah. Um. And they both have uh, fairy tale fantasies about the heroes. Yes. Uh, Hakider feels like proto Garo in a lot of ways like i i noticed a lot of weird little similarities my but uh yeah my favorite parts of the entire movie are probably her dream scenes where she's being tormented by this horrific angel monster and her kiter's represented as a black knight who comes in and slays it and sets crosses on fire which is so oh, man this movie <laughs> looks so aesthetically this is such a cool movie i love the look tone and ideas of Hakaider, I am not in love with a lot of how it was executed. It, it's, um, it's, there was, for one thing, there was a weird period in the late eighties through to the mid to late nineties in Japan. Um, you know, you can see it the most in anime. That's when they always say that that's the golden age of anime. And it's because the economy in Japan was so good that artists could easily get money to make their weird passion projects. Some of those suck, but some of those are Ghost in the Shell and Akira and all these amazing milestones of filmmaking and animation because there was money there to throw around. And Hakaider, it really feels like I have this weird half-cooked idea that's mostly just cool visuals I want to do. Somebody give me money to do it. And he was able to find the money to do it because he was definitely out to create something visually spectacular and the plot and characters were not even secondary, maybe tertiary. They were like third or fourth down the line of what he cared about. Yeah. I think like visuals and then like the commentary he's trying to sell, because like, it's not subtle at all. This uh, very brazen commentary about a villain being an anti-fascist symbol and helping overthrow a faux utopic society. It's brazen and like in your face in terms of that. So I feel yeah. There's not a lot of subtlety on display in Hokkaider. <laughs> there doesn't need to be. No, no, no. no. Um, how how much did you love the shot when the uh, he kind of does it in Zaram too? But I, I think I liked it better in Hokkaider. There's a shot in Hokkaider where a drop of is it water or blood or no? It's her bell. Yeah, her bell fa falls to the ground, hits the ground, and as it hits the ground, it's like it hits water. And ripples up and they do this beautiful animated mat where it spreads out and like changes the scenery. And it, and this is done in 95 with no CGI. Like it was, it's all like um, hand animated mats and, uh, and comp you know, old school compositing. When I say compositing, I don't mean digital. I mean like they were literally layering film to get these effects to work. Yeah, it is a very beautiful shot that I had completely forgotten about from the first time I watched it. And I, I think that is one thing that I definitely appreciated more about it this time, is that for all of its narrative flaws, it still feels like a very lyrical kind of attempt at telling a story. It's uh, 
it's more so about conveying emotion over logic, which is something I love in movies. Yeah. I just feel like there's something about, and I, keep in mind, this could be because I watched the director's cut, which for all I know isn't even a proper cut. There's something about the way it's structured where it stops about midway through and all momentum gets lost and isn't really regained until after Kaoru dies. See, I think I think that is a byproduct of the director's cut because the the theatrical cut moves too quickly. I think. Oh God! Like, it is it's so fast. Like you literally you meet the rebels. the The scene you meet the rebels is also the scene where the bad guys burst in and kill them all, and then and then soon after, Karu gets shot to the point where it was so abrupt that I didn't. I didn't remember that she died from those wounds. Mm -hmm. So I was completely thrown off. I was like, oh man. And and the bummer of that is that you can, you can put a moment like that in a movie if you're trying to make a statement on like how cruel reality can be and things like that. But Hakaider isn't really that kind of movie. It's, it's a movie about robots punching each other. So it would have been much more narratively satisfying if, if you're going to kill Karu, at least let it happen in battle because she is a, she is a rebel. She is a warrior. So it would have been way more interesting to me to see her, you know, storm the castle with Hakaider at the end. But, um, you know, it, it plays out the way it plays out. Yeah. In the uh, director's cut, what ends up happening is there's that scene. Uh, she gets injured and kind of wanders around Jesus town for a bit, calling them hypocrites. And then Hakaider finds her, brings her to her favorite spot, which is like this little oasis away from Jesus town. And she dies there. Which that that is how it happens in the theatrical, but I'm sure it's truncated from, like, it, it, man, I feel like you should watch the, the theatrical just to see how fast it moves from scene to scene. It's almost comical sometimes. I think if there's any pre-existing tokusatsu movie that I would love to see remade or rebooted, it probably is this one. Keep Kita mm -hmm. on board. Let him direct again. Keep the aesthetic. Hire another writer. That yeah. But I, oh, that being said, I would still definitely recommend this movie to for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, if you've seen Zaram or or Grow or anything else that Keith has done and you liked it, there's stuff to love about Hakaider because like it's it's Keita all over the place. It's his imagery, it's his design work, his his weird little obsessions. Um, it's also a, an, an interesting curio to to watch it and then watch Grow and see how much of the things he was playing with in Hakaider, make it into including character names, which is just wild. Like it's, it's, it's fast. It was really fascinating this time to notice that stuff. Um, also the, basically the last 15 minutes, the, the visuals during the final fight are so spectacular. Um, maybe my favorite thing about this movie is when he's fighting Mikael and they're throwing each other around this room and the room is stark white. Everything in the room is white. But the inside of everything they're breaking is bright red. It's almost like the room is bleeding. It's the craziest shit. Like, I've never seen anything like, like that in any other movie. It's so beautiful. The shots are beautifully composed. And the sound design is wonderful because for big swaths of that fight, there's no music. It's just two metal things hitting each other. And the ting echoing through, like, the cavernous space they're in. And, uh... It's just super badass. You know, I think maybe this is what Kita intended. Maybe this is me looking too deep into it, but I kind of took it as as Mikhail's 
beating the shit out of Hikider and the room's getting more and more red, it's kind of like showing how Jesus Town is actually this bloody hell on the inside. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm sure I'm sure you're right. Yeah. I mean watching it I was just like taken aback because I'd forgotten how cool it looks. This is also my first time watching it on a TV and not a little laptop screen. So <laughs> yeah. uh I was uh yeah, I don't want it to come across like I don't like this movie. I like it quite a lot. It's just there's something missing. It's barely a movie. That It's more like a – it almost plays like a demo reel of like, look how badass I can make stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? It's 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 very much like Kida's reel. Um, it would play – Oh, something I wanted to, to add about this and Zaram because Zaram is about to be officially released on Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. uh, Zaram 2 already is. Uh, Hakider's already out there, all by Media Blasters, I believe. And another reason to pick these up is they're inexpensive. I think to pre-order Zaram, it's $14 right now. And you should get them because these type of things go out of print. They don't do a million copies of these weird little tokusatsu movies from 30 years ago. So you should, you should, you should grab them up because they're worth seeing, they're worth owning, and they're worth studying if, if you're into, especially if you're a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I can unironically say I've learned more as a director watching these than I have from most major movies I've seen in the last year. Like, yeah, man, they're clever. Like, I, I, I can't think of a better word. They're just cleverly made films. I think that if you were to watch Hakaider, the best way to go about it would be to, well, you know, outside of format, but to, like, approach it as, like, uh, watch it alongside Common Rider Zoe, which is one of the Common Rider shorts that yeah. Kita directed. They're both about 15 minutes long, depending on which cut you watch, and they both kind of exemplify him applying his aesthetic to a pre-existing franchise. Yeah. It also just, you know, translate to making it better. Yes, yes. <laughs> Because I, I like Common Rider the best when, when Kida is involved with it. Yeah, I don't I know we're gonna I'll probably piss some people off. Um Common Rider is something that I've been struggling to get into, but I love the two Kita films. Yeah. So. Jay and Zoe, very cool. I hope those get official releases sometime soon. So yeah, that's a Hakider. It's definitely worth watching, and if nothing else, it's very cool looking. And it's yeah. metal as yeah, it's, fuck. It, it totally is. Yeah, it's it's worth watching. Um, so, to discuss the next film, we're gonna have to do a lot of plotting through some background history here because it's Garo Red. Uh, man, I'm gonna mess this up a few times. Red Requiem. It's a lot of R's. A lot yeah. of Garo Red Requiem. <laughs> there we go. There you go. Which yeah. is a, a feature-length film that was meant to bridge the gap between seasons one and two of Garo, which is probably Kita's most well-known work or most well-regarded. Yeah, because it's it's pretty much, in some way or another, still going today. Like I know I, I assume there's more Garo coming out soon. It seems like there always is. Yeah. Um. How would you describe Garo? Okay, so Garo is. At its core, it's a henshin hero tokusatsu. And for anyone who doesn't know henshin, I believe it's the Japanese word for change or transform. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in some henshin shows, they literally yell henshin when they transform into their hero form. 
Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which is based on Super Sentai, is one of the early examples of a henshin hero show. Uh, so that's what Goro is at its core. But it is aimed at an adult audience. So uh, it's very dark in tone. It's a little more violent. There's occasional blood and gore. And there's occasional uh, sexual content and nudity. So it's it's like they, they call this uh, Midnight Tokusatsu. It, it doesn't play Saturday morning. It plays late at night. Um, it has its own little like otaku following. Um, but the gist of Goro is there are things called horrors which are basically demons. You know, horror is just the word they're called in this, but they, they feed on the negative aspects of humanity. They possess humans. And uh, then you have the uh, Makai knights and Makai priests and Makai alchemists who are heroes who battle horrors. Specifically, the knights do most of the battling. And our lead a character, uh, Koga Saijima, is a is a knight is a, a makai knight in uh, glorious golden armor who battles horrors and uh that's i mean there's it gets more complicated but that's the gist of it yeah it's um i think that the first season of goro is probably my favorite tokusatsu series in general i learned about it through dustin when i was in film school and uh, i was pretty unfamiliar with any toku that wasn't godzilla gamma or ultraman so yeah it, Jumping into Goro was, like, life-changing for me. Yeah. Goro spoiled a lot of other tokusatsu for me because I loved it so much that I just wanted everything to be like Goro. I wanted the dark tone. I wanted the, like, street-level, like, fight scenes with monsters. I wanted everything to be like it. And um, not much is. Uh, basically, other things made by Kita and Amamiya are like Goro, but there's really nothing like Maybe the closest is like the the old common like common writer Black from the eighties because Kita worked on it, um, but uh, yeah, it was my it was my entry point into television tokusatsu pretty much. And if the idea of jumping into a full series is daunting to you, the good news is that the movie we're about to discuss is a pretty good starting point if you want to get into it. It doesn't have a ton of ties to the first season of the show outside of the same main character, Koga. And uh, it honestly exemplifies what Goro is on an aesthetic level pretty perfectly. With, with some except, I kind of, I think I have to disagree about it being a good starting point. Hmm. Um, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but there are some things I'll put this out there. Overall, I like Red Requiem, but there are certain things, most of them technical that rub me the wrong way. Um, and we can get, we can get into yeah. that, but I don't want to, I don't want to undercut what you're saying because what, you know, what you're saying has value. It could be a good starting point. It just has some, some, I have some nitpicks. Right. Well, before we get into that, I'm just going to give a bit of background info on it. it. Basically, the first season was a pretty big success. So, uh, Tohoku Shinsha, which is a Japanese studio, decided to greenlight a theatrical movie. And it was actually released in 3D, which is something I didn't know until recently. But watching it again, I could easily see where that would have fit in. Uh, basically, our main character, uh, Koga, the Makai Knight from the main series is hunting for a horror who lives through mirrors named Karma. And Karma is uh, occasionally nude demoness who is physically played by an AV idol named Soari Hara and voiced by Miki Hiji. And she is uh, 
She's a pretty sweet monster when she gets to be a monster. Sometimes she's just a girl in uh, Lolita outfits. And yeah. <laughs> he's aided by a Makai priest named Rekka, who's played by Mary Matsuyama, who became a bit of a seri like a fan favorite after this one. For good reason. For good reason. She's really good in this. Uh, but yeah, that's the basic gist of it. Uh, Koga and Rekka have to find Karma and kill her, and along the way fight a lot of CG monsters in glorious CG environments. <laughs> sure, glorious. Yeah. Yes, that's the word I choose to use. <laughs> and sometimes nightclubs. Sometimes nightclubs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In scenes clearly inspired by Blade. Yes. But yes. Um, so yeah, now now that I've gotten that out of the way, I am really curious to hear your thoughts on Red Requ Requiem. Okay, so uh, I think. I think Red Red Requiem starts to work about seventy five percent of the way through. Mm -hmm. I think during the last, the last, like the third act of the movie, it, it really starts to fire on, on all cylinders, and it works for me. In the beginning, I got some I got some problems, and I think I've kind of figured out where they stem from. So, one thing to be clear about: I I have not watched the second season of Garo yet. I think you've watched at least some of it, right? Or have you watched the entire thing? Oh, I watched the whole thing. Okay, so my my love of Grow is basically all fixated on that first season, which was made a good five or six years before the second season. And Red Requiem was made right before the second season, so it is four or five years separated from the end of the, of the original run. And in that time, I think they either lost or destroyed a lot of the suits and props. Mm -hmm. Because there are no, except for one funky looking monster arm in the opening sequence, there are no practical effects in this movie. You, there's never, the suit of armor is never real. It's always CGI. All the monsters are CGI. Um, it's kind of frustrating for me that because of this, they come up with a reason for Koga not to be able to use the Garo armor for most of the movie. Um, when they get to the end and everything is CG pretty much except for karma in certain shots as a real actress and in a really awesome design where yeah. her body is a live action actress with prosthetics on. And then she has no arms and legs and her arms and legs are made of like shards that fly through the air. It's a, it's a really beautiful and elegant and super horny design for a monster that I appreciate. Um, but I was, I, I had, I had seen red, red Requiem before. It is hard to say I'd seen it before, but I kind of forgotten how, shoddy of some of the action is and just the it really bummed me out not seeing the real suit of of makai knight armor and i also started to really miss some of the characters from the show because really koga's the only koga and his ring zaraba he has a ring that speaks to him um and can detect horrors he can smell their miasma uh they're the only returning characters there's no karu there's no zero um, there's no Gonza for God's yeah. sakes. Uh, so I, as a movie in the franchise, I kind of prefer the show because even the action in the movie, even though it does get big at the end, it never really matches what we've seen in the show. Like some of the fights with Kiba in the show are way larger scale than what we see in Red Requiem. So I feel like I'm sounding really negative about it. I do like it. There are plenty of things I like about it, but watching it this time, 
I was just like, man, this kind of just makes, I would rather be watching the show. It makes me want to watch the show more than anything. You know, it's funny because when I got 75% into the movie and we reached that fully CG environment and he was fighting Karma, the only thing that kept popping into my head is, how many times can Koga fight a giant naked woman in some, like, adjacent dimension? <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert, that is how the first season ends, so it's a little weird that they did it again. I mean, I think there's a reason for it, uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was another thing, Seb, this is a good... This brings me to another point that i noticed a level of sexism in this mm, yeah that was not pre was not present in hakaider or zaram and it's really it's really un uncharacteristic for a person to get to become more sexist as they age but it really did i mean the the way Rekka is treated by the other characters is kind of, i mean they even call her a bitch at one point and like it made me mad because immediately i loved Rekka. Rekka's character is a so women are not allowed to become Makai knights in this universe, which, you know, also is sexist. And when Rekka was a kid, she was like, I want to be a Makai knight and I'm only becoming a Makai priestess because it's the next best thing, but I'm going to train for combat like I'm a knight. So she has all the like magic of the, of the priests and alchemists that we see throughout the series, but she also knows how to physically kick ass because her dad trained her to, to physically fight horrors. And she's just a great character. Like, she's so determined um she has skill and the the other characters kind of treat her poorly and i it i don't know i didn't i didn't like it and nobody ever apologizes to her for it either well it is worth noting that uh kita did not write the screenplay for red requiem it was outsourced to somebody okay. named itaru era and uh i i'm not familiar with his other works but it uh yeah there are aspects of it where like it doesn't feel like it's written by somebody who fully grasps the characters of Goro. Like, Koga in the series would never set out to quote-unquote humble a woman or anything like that. Never. Never. It never. And the fact that Zaraba calls her a bitch really bothered me. Because I was like, Zaraba does not... I Like, that is bizarre. It's just a bizarre choice. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I also love Rekka as a character. Season 2 of Goro made me like her even more because you spend yeah. quite a bit of time with her. Um, yeah, it's disheartening to see that they went that route. It's the only thing that really does bug me about the movie on a narrative level. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, I like most of what goes on in Red Requiem. I love... I do too. I love the villains in this movie. Like, mm -hmm. they're great. Um, besides Karma herself, we have... Uh, two semi-human villains, uh, Caruso and Shion, who are... Um... And those two characters are very Sebi. Those are very Sebi characters. <laughs> Ex excessively. <laughs> if I made this, it would have just been about them. Yeah, because they are they are sympathetic and tragic and romantic. Very gothy. And, but they're also evil. <laughs> yeah, so that's very much... That's very up your alley. Yeah, um, Caruso is a painter whose wife Shion passed away, and uh, he became insane and murderous and karma basically offered him Shion and eternal youth in exchange for serving her in his young form he's played by someone named shinji Kas kasahara and when he's an old man he's played by akira nako who was in many of the heisei godzilla movies i i knew i recognized him i was like that guy looks so familiar he's great uh he doesn't get a ton of screen time in red requiem but he sells it when he's there he's a really good villain yeah. um oh, sorry go ahead you're about to I was just gonna say that I just wanted to say that the the lady playing Shion, both just in her her natural physical appearance and her costume design, 
is so striking mm. and interesting to look at. She has these huge eyes and um, she has they there's an um, asymmetric motif with her design. So she has two forms. You see her. She mostly looks like a lady in a skirt. And then later she is um, in a callback to Hakaider is all white with one angel wing. Um, and in that form, she's just as striking. She's she. I was like obsessed with looking at her. <laughs> like she's just such a fascinating, fascinating, uh, just person to look at. But also the character design was exceptional. I thought. Yeah, uh, she's played by an actress named uh, Hiromi Aguchi, who sadly didn't do a ton else. She had a bit part in Sion Sano's Suicide Club, uh, but beyond okay. that, nothing else too notable. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, speaking of supporting cast, though. Uh, in addition to Rekka, there are two other Makai priests that we get to spend time with. Neither of whom are particularly interesting, sadly. I, I think the older guy is kind of interesting. He has at least a little bit of depth to him. The other guy is a nothing. Yeah, the uh, Akaza is the one who's the older man. Yeah. He's played by a great Japanese character actor named Yosuke Saito, who played the bad guy in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. And he's been in a bunch of stuff. He passed away last year, sadly. But, man, he, uh, he takes what is a pretty flat character, I think, and gives him a lot of... I won't say depth, but you do care about him in key moments towards the end, I think. Yeah, for sure. You understand him, which, um, you know, which is important. Uh, I guess, like, outside of a characteristic standpoint, uh, which I talked about, I have a lot of issues with how Kuga behaves towards Rekka, how a lot of characters behave towards Rekka. What does make this work is that the guy who plays Koga is still really good. I like him a lot in the yeah, show, and... I do, too. Even if the material isn't up to snuff here, he still makes that character his own, I think. He has... He, you know... It's hard because of the, the language barrier to know how he's delivering the dialogue exactly. But he has such presence. And he he goes at it 100%. I, w I was thinking about that as I was watching. Like, the the Garou series is not, a, is, is not a series that has a lot of comedy. Sometimes there's characters who are silly that show up. But it's, it's really straight-faced a lot of the time. And the, the guy playing Koga really sells it. And he... He, he's, I almost wonder if he's a martial artist or a dancer or something because his physicality is so important and so well done. Just little things like his body language, the poses he strikes, the fact that, again, he's doing most of his own fighting. I kept watching his face, like even some of the funky wire work. I'm like, that's really him. He's actually doing it. Good for him, you know. Um, other times it's a stuntman in a really floofy wig when he has to like fall down and stuff like that. But it, it is, it's, it's, it was impressive to see how much of the actual physical stuff he was doing on his own. I think another way that this film kind of falters in comparison to the series, and this isn't just because of the use of CG over practical effects, the creature designs just aren't as inspired as they are in the original show. Like, we get what we got that big quadruped creature they fight at the beginning, which yeah. is fine. We've got Karma herself, which is probably the best monster in the movie. For sure, Karusu, whose creature design is fine. But then there's like he turns into a Devil May Cry monster. Like he straight up looks like a boss from Devil May Cry. And then there's the the worst thing in this movie are the goons that they fight at the end. Oh yeah, man! That that was another thing. <laughs> 
so like in in Garo, there horrors. If you see a horror and it hasn't possessed a human being yet, they look a specific way, and it's a very cool monster design. And then they'll possess a human being, and then they become an even cooler monster design that's in theme with you know the that person's like sins or you know negative you know like defects of their personality. But for some reason, in place of those guys in Red Requiem, we just get guys in black robes with rubber masks. It was very bizarre. They looked like something you and I would do when we're not trying. Yeah. Like, they looked... They looked like they raided Spirit Halloween. Yeah, it, it really looks like they bought a mask and a black robe. It was weird. It was... It, I, like, I, I just have to think that they either didn't have access to the, the stuff from the series. Nothing from the series reappears here. Like, no. you know, like, like I said, there's no... You never see the physical armor... Um, and you never see a, a like they ha in the series, the horrors are done in two ways. They have, um, or three ways technically, because sometimes they're CG, but there'll be a guy in a suit. And then in close ups there are these fantastic puppets yep. and not, none of that is here. And to watch a, a Kita movie without that clever, this was what I was getting at where I was like, I don't think this is super aesthetically like Kita's work. It is in the design and it is in the costuming. But in the actual filmmaking, that clever filmmaking was kind of missing. Um, this felt more straightforward. I think by virtue of just like when he got to a fight scene, he just was, I mean, he basically just had to hand it over to the CG artist and probably, you know, he didn't get to, to come up with the stuff on the fly that he usually does. Um, and that's not to say it's like unwatchable or anything. Like as, as mediocre as the CGI is, it, it mostly fits the aesthetic and style of the movie. Mm -hmm. But it does look the best when everything is CGI and it's not being mixed in with the live action. Like, the final battle looks the best because it is 99% CGI. I actually, yeah, and I actually like the last fight quite a bit. I think it's a really fun I sequence. I think that, um, in a lot of ways, I think it's a better action scene than what we get at the end of the first season of Garo. Which isn't to yeah. say, like, that's not a good finale or anything. It's just I thought this was more dynamic. I love, like, the red background and just Karma's design itself. Well, by the time you get to the end of Garo, basically any time they get isekai into the demon world in Garo, yeah. those, are, those are the weakest episodes, I think. Um, and that's how it ends. It ends in that, like, weird void of, like, CGI stuff. Um, but by the time you get to that last battle, you've already seen that amazing battle with Kiba. And, like the show could have ended after that fight where they're fighting midair and then slam into the building and that giant ring, like all that like massive scale stuff that's done with costumes on green screen and wire work and stuff. So it, I don't know. That stuff always appeals to me more than like full CGI action, but I'm not a CGI hater. Like it doesn't bother me to see the full CGI action, but yeah, I don't know. Once you've seen that, I guess it's just hard to top. Like yeah. I, the whole time I was thinking of that fight with Kiba, <laughs> Yeah, like, I, I just gushed about how much I like Karusu and Shion, but as far as main villains go, Karma's just not as interesting as Kiba is as a character. Like, yeah. Kiba's a... I don't want to spoil it, because if you haven't seen the show, it's kind of a surprise of who and what Kiba is, so... Yeah. We'll just say that he's a good bad guy and uh, really ties in perfectly with uh, the themes of Goro, I think, at least. And got his own, um... Uh, would you call it an OVA? Or no, it's not OVA because it's not animation, but his own V Cinema special, right? Yeah, yeah, he got like a, an hour-long special that details his origins. It's 
pretty cheap and mostly done in a single room, but it's really, it's fun if you, <laughs> it's, it's cool if you're like a completionist. Right, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that of the three movies we watched, I personally think that Hokkaider is the lesser of the three. It's the coolest looking, but it's the one that I got the least out of from a narrative standpoint. I think my personal, I mean, you're probably right about that. My personal preference of ranking is like Zoram at the top, then Hakaider, and then Red Requiem. I, I don't know. I did, There were a lot of things that just did not sit well with me in Red Requiem and but it did have it did make me want to go and and watch the series again and to finally watch the second series so it at least gave me that but I, yeah I don't know Red Requiem not that I disliked it I didn't um but it would for me it was the lowest on the totem pole yeah I I agree with that I think I just like that last action sequence so much and I like Garou in it general it's very good yeah. yeah but we can both agree that Zaram is objectively a perfect movie <laughs> sure. Yes. We'll just say it is. I don't think it, it might not be true, but we're gonna say. Who's it. going to argue with us? I don't know. Some asshole. Yeah. Well. <laughs> anyways, to wrap things up, how would you suggest people go about, you know, trying to experience Kiramimiya's filmography themselves if they're just getting into it? Um. Well, first, I need a pee break. I'm not gonna make. Oh, it. go for Give it, dude. Yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> Jacob, just hold on. I know you're listening. I'm back. Sorry about that. Nope. No worries. Okay. Do you, did you just stay recording? Yeah. I just left a little note to Jacob to say, Hey, just hold on. He'll be right back. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So ask, ask me that question again, Seb. So how would you suggest anybody who is interested in Kita's work based on what we've been talking about, go about getting into it? I, I would say either start with Zaram or Garo. Um, they're pretty accessible. I think Gar the Garo stuff might be on the verge of going out of print because I don't know that Kraken releasing is even around anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're they're pretty accessible. 
And if you like those, you'll find something to appreciate about basically everything he's done, I think. Um, but Zeram is coming out on a new Blu-ray by Media Blasters. You can pre-order it now. Like, I, I would definitely recommend getting it. Uh, what do you think? What's your opinion? What, what do you think is the best entry point? Start with Zeram because it's, you know, just a great piece of tokusatsu in general. And it'll get you used to his, like, approach to creature design and direction. And then if you like that, I say jump head first in season one of Garou. And yeah. it'll, you know, both of those things will ruin the entire genre for you. Yeah, they kind of will. But, I mean, clearly they won't. Like, yeah. we found more stuff to love. But it was a tough couple of years after Garou to be like, man, nothing is, nothing's hitting the spot the same yeah, way. Yeah, no. Um, can I tell you a funny story about Zoran? Please do. Okay, so when I was a kid, we're talking, I was probably... I don't know, maybe as young as seven or eight. Uh, I grew up mostly in the nineties. I was born in 85. I, I experienced the, um, the, uh, nineties mom and pop video store boom. Right. So my small town, as small as it is, it's very, very small. I had like four video stores and one of them was diamond video and diamond video always had the weird stuff, right? Like that's where you could rent Giver too. Nobody else had Giver too. I remember that. So, um, they had Zeram on VHS the, to rent. I was never allowed to rent it. I don't think because of content. I think just because it was Japanese and my parents were like, he's not going to watch this, you know, like just to, you know, I mean, they were probably correct at that time. Uh, I don't think it was dubbed. I think it was probably subbed, but in any, in any case, there was a copy there. And every time we'd go to diamond video, I would pick it up and look at it and look at the art and look at the back and on the back it showed Zaram's skeletal monster form okay and i became so obsessed with that image that like i would draw it and i even made my own mac like uh action figure out of a gi joe and like masking tape and wire to look like the Zaram skeletal monster um i wish i could find it i don't think it exists anymore but it had the mushroom hat it had the four legs it had the the big spindly arms everything and uh, I was just, I, I didn't even know what the movie was called. I just loved that monster. So then years later, I think after having seen Garo, when I was looking into more of Kita's work, I kind of made that connection of like, oh shit, that's that monster I used to be obsessed with. And then found Zaram that way and like have loved it ever since and kind of lament the fact that I didn't get to see it as a kid. Cause I think I, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible for me to love it even more, but it would have been nice to have that nostalgic attachment to it too. But, um, but yeah, so I have that weird little connection to Zaram that I didn't even know I had until like 20 years later. Oh, that's pretty sweet. I wish you could find that toy. I know. I want to find it. I'm sure it's not as cool in real life as it is in my head, but I used to be obsessed with making things out of masking tape. Like I even made, the creatures I made for Slimoids, your movie Slimoids, yeah. those were made in the same way. Those were made with masking tape and liquid rubber and stuff like that. So, uh, but yeah, I used to do that all the time. Um, I think that my closing points would be that Kira Mamea means a lot to me as an artist because he's somebody who I connect with so much on the, you know, in terms of sensibilities and aesthetic and stuff like that. And he's proof that you can be so attached to those things into the imagery you love, into the tropes you love, and you can still make a career out of it. Whereas a lot of filmmakers will compromise and, uh, you know, down the line, just kind of let go of things. 
he never did. The movies he was making in the 90s are what he makes now still. And he, he grows and, you know, he's clever and smart about it. I think that's uh, why he means so much to me as a creative it's it's really it's really nice, especially just we get we get drips and drabs of it every once in a while of where you can just really see the director's preferences and you can see their eye and you can see the things they love. It still happens sometimes, but it happened a lot in the eighties and nineties. Like there there is a lot of auteurs, a lot of weirdos getting to make their dreams come true and it's always fun to find that stuff. And here's the bonus about Kita is um he's he's kind of like Takashi Mike in that he works all the time. Yeah. So there is tons of Kita stuff. When you and I were first talking about like Toku stuff and how much we love Grow and how much we like Kita Amamiya, you and I were both just like, I feel like daily for like three days straight finding stuff we didn't even know he'd done. Um, kid shows and um, concept designs for, you know, movies he didn't direct where you're like, that is a Kita design. Okay. Like stuff like that. It, it's, it's pretty wild how much of his work exists and, it's exciting because when you find an artist you like and then you realize they're prolific, it gets really exciting that there's more stuff out there to seek out. I mean, yeah, like as much as uh, we're gushing about it, there's still a lot that I haven't seen yet. Like I've only seen a couple episodes of his more recent Toku series, uh, Shugeki Garigen, I believe it's called. Yeah. Uh, I haven't. I haven't jumped into it yet, but I'm excited to. Oh, you're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. I think. I'm sure I will. Um, <laughs> uh, I haven't watched uh, Moon Over Tao yet which I know is a yeah. pretty beloved film of his. I haven't seen the second Zaram yet. And do you know what? As much as I do want to see those things, it makes me happy that they're out there to still be seen. Yeah. I mean, I've had... I've had a real... And it's really thanks to labels like Media Blasters, Discotech, and Mill Creek, yeah. who are bringing a lot of this stuff over here for us to finally see legally, you know? Used to have you used to have to brick your computer with adware to watch these things, and um, it's nice that we can actually get them. You know, all this Ultraman content, Shout Factory's putting out common writer content. Like, it's overpriced, but it's there. It, it, you can yeah. <laughs> you can get it. And uh, I've had a real like personal renaissance with being able to find so many things. When you watch as many movies as Seb and I do, and we watch a lot of fucking movies, you get a, you, it, you can get a little burnout. And you start to feel like you've seen everything that's good. And over just like the past year, I found so much in the world of Toku and anime that and I have so much more to watch that it's exciting to be a, a movie lover again. Yeah, you know, it's because um, I grew up with Godzilla movies and like I would go on the internet and I'd look up pictures of Ultraman and stuff like that. And like for years, that's the only way I could ever see it. And over the years, like... I kind of lost that connection with Toku, but in the last two years, I'd say, uh, I think I'd say like maybe four or five years, whenever Shin Godzilla came out, I started to reconnect with it again. And because of Shinji Higuchi's Attack on Titan movies, I started to get more into new Toku stuff. And because of you, I got into Garou and the more recent Ultraman shows. So like finding that connection with a genre that really inspired me as a kid and, you know, finding out that it can still inspire me now has meant the world to me. And that's what this podcast has been all about. I just wanted to inflict dustinized gushings upon the entire <laughs> world. And you should know that it, it comes at a personal sacrifice to the two of us because Seb and I were just like Toku buddies. Like it was just like, oh, I just watched Ultraman X and I loved it. You're not going to believe this thing they did in it, you know, like sharing it. Now we have to hold back 
until we talk to you all. <laughs> so, and you see, so appreciate our sacrifice. Yeah, please, because otherwise it's just like, <laughs> hey, have you seen this thing? Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> cool. We'll talk about yeah. it in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, we'll be back with another episode, whether you want it or not. We'll be here. This is a THK, THK, THK. THK. <laughs> <laughs>